0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast, episode 196. My best guess. Uh, for this episode, we're joined by Connor Carmody. Uh, Connor is a highly experienced business executive, held a number of senior management positions all across uh, telecom industry. Currently, the program director at the Innovation Exchange and the CCO of Aerofly. I don't know if I pronounce it on Technology. Aerofly. Aerofly. <laughs> thank you very much,
1: Connor. You're very welcome to the show. Ryan, thanks so much for having me on this morning, and looking forward to a nice chat with you.
0: Likewise look we'll jump straight in as I said to you before we hit the record button typically focus on kind of getting to understand and know who you are I don't want to sound like a stalker here but I usually try to start off with like pulling it right back to where someone grew up and the only thing I could go off is your accent which tells me that you're not from Kildare because I see that you're on the board of a school in Kildare so I'm assuming that you live in Kildare but you're from
1: Dublin you're a very good stalker, Ian. I'll give you that. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up out in uh, Stillorgan, actually. Um, that was kind of uh, home for probably the first twenty years, and then moved on into <clears throat> city centre. Lived there for a couple of years. Uh, went to Russia. Uh, so I started. I was in Penny's Primark when it was being set up as the kind of the office had moved back from, uh, the UK to Dublin, and we were setting up the office down at Mary Street. So, uh, went in there <clears throat> for a number of years and was possibly the worst menswear buyer ever. Um, And uh, after that, I went to Russia. Uh, I lived over there for, I guess, the early 90s uh, after the fall of the wall, and we set up a business over there um, and had a great number of years over there. And my wife was with me as well, so we, she was working in one business, I was working in another. And we stayed there until probably about 97, 98, I'm going to say and uh came back then and as we came back then the family were starting so we settled into kildare out in a little village called prosperous outside of nace and we've been here ever since ryan
0: i love it well let's start with Stallorgan and then we'll move on to business what was life like growing up in Stallorgan? any kind of standout memories
1: Ah, it was one, maybe I'm just an old guy, but it was a wonderful time. I had a great bunch of mates growing up out there. Uh, We're still pals to this day. We uh, talk about the old times as old timers do, but we had great fun. We, I mean, Stilorgan back then was probably a smaller kind of outpost of Dublin city centre. Um, So it was a small village. This was, I mean, they were only starting on the building of the big industrial estate that's out there now. There was a... so, but it was a, it was a great village full of great characters, enormous fun. Uh, so no, I'd have to say I really enjoyed it and all the guys that I grew up. But as I said, we'd a, we'd a wonderful friend group who were still all buddies to this day. There's, there's guys that I know that I started on primary, in primary school with on my first day and we're still buddies. Yeah. 50 odd years later, we were, were were still best of mates. So it was, uh, it was a great time. And actually in Storgham was a lovely place. Uh, uh, it's grown up hugely since then. And when you look at all the development that's gone into it, but yeah, great, great fun out there. I'd have to say.
0: Brilliant. Well, before we move on from this, the transition to the next stage is people can usually point to two to three people perhaps that were in their immediate circle, family, friends, a teacher that had a massive impact on their early life that helped them become the person they are today. So does anybody spring to mind for you?
1: Do you know, it's a great question actually and I don't know about influences but maybe influences were shaped in in many different ways. But like I went to a primary school, St. Lawrence's across there and it was it was amazing. And and, you know, it was it was great. But there was a teacher at the time, uh, Mr. Crow, because they were all Mr. And they probably still are in school, Mr. Crow. And he was uh, he was a wonderful uh, guy. Uh, and I always recall, you know, times could be schoolmasters could be rough back in those days. And there was a bit of pushing and shoving and, and whatnot. He was a wonderful, amazing guy. He would uh, give up so much of his time. He was mad about art. And he would take us into the art gallery in Dublin on a Saturday, give up his own time, take five or six, eight of us in, whoever wanted to go. And then we'd all go for a day out in town. Uh, and you kind of think, here's a guy giving up his time of a Saturday morning because of a love of art and a love of kind of teaching and imparting knowledge and all of that. And his family were deeply rooted in the community. His father was deeply rooted down in Kilmacud Croaks, as I recall, and they were just they were good people and you knew by them that they were good people. So if you push me, I'd kind of say in the midst of kind of growing up in the rough and tumble of primary school back in the 70s, and then you this really gentle soul who who spent a bit of time with us and uh, and brought us out to to kind of wi- widen your horizons, I guess I just kind of think is not that an amazing feat for somebody to kind of find that time to kind of share that with a bunch of hooligans. Really, uh, it's it's kind of amazing, isn't it?
0: It certainly is. Mr. Crow sounds like a good guy. The number of friends or acquaintances who are teachers and they often don't get enough credit of the impact they're going to positively have on on people.
1: I think it's amazing, Rian, you know, and my kids are grown up now, they've come out of the primary school system and they're just finishing, the last of them is just finishing the secondary school system. But I can look back, and they can, on a couple of teachers who, as you say, went out of the way. And teachers, I mean, you mentioned them on the board of the local school, so I see it uh, uh, in in a hand, first hand but they have such a significant impact at a moment in time for a young child's life. And, and the really, and there's loads and loads of really good ones. Uh, And they put in that extra bit of effort and they put in the bit of work and they get to know the child and they spend a bit of time with them. And you know, the, the arm around the shoulder, the, uh, the kind of going over and above. And there was one teacher uh, who stands out for me down in the school with, with my own kids. And she was just so lovely. And, did so much for for our kids as they work their way through. You kind of look at them and you go, "Yeah, it's a it is a vocation actually in in many respects, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you kind of gotta love it as well because it's you're never gonna become a millionaire
1: from being a teacher. No, absolutely. And you know, ours is a little village school where I live, um, and they're they're just wonderful folks. There's a lovely sense of community, and everybody's in it for that sense of community, for that sense of of giving back. Um, so it almost is. It's like our, our nursing profession. It is it is a vocation. You found something that you really love and you're going to do it, you know, and you're not doing it to get rich and you'll never get rich and or anything like that, but you're doing it for a love of, of what you do, which is kind of really, really nice, I think.
0: Shout out to the teachers. Well, look, let's not rewind the clock anymore. Let's speed it up a little bit uh, and go to the time you spent uh, at two roles. The first one I'm going to talk on here is Meteor Mobile. You spent 10 yeah. years there, so a full decade, so there's a plenty of experience to pull on. What's perhaps a standout skill or behavior that you felt you left that role better at than when you went into the role
1: that Meteor helped you improve on? That is a super question. And you, when we think about the story of Meteor, which was a challenging story. So we, I was the first commercial guy into the business pretty much. So I set up the whole commercial organization. I was part of the very early stage team that went into that business. And it had an enormously challenging early stage period so we got a license and the license was revoked and challenged in court we finally got the license after another year there was two really strong competitors there was uh, what became o2 and what became vodafone and um, two really strong well-entrenched competitors and um and we were this scrappy little startup underfunded struggling to kind of make its way in the world real startup behavior um and uh, and we did it and we built that company up to over a million subscribers, nearly half a billion in revenue and sold it off to aircom, uh, which was quite amazing and and that was done through one of the things that meteor did exceptionally well was culture and you know at the end of the day there was probably a thousand people working for us uh, as we got to it there was We had instilled a set of values at the very start when there was a small team of 30 or 40 people. And those values held firm as we grew. And we did hire people according to those values. And they were, as I recall, they were called the five B's. You were be a good teammate, be positive, things like that. And that's actually how we lived our life. And um, I kind of, I won't say grew up there, but I kind of learned so much there going in as a young, relatively young dude of kind of 29, 30 years of age, whatever I was when I went in to a relatively senior role and then coming out the other side as a more seasoned uh kind of professional what did i learn i learned the value of uh kind of values and instilling them and um i learned kind of about commercials and growing a a kind of a almost half a billion dollar organization and um the guy who was running it at the time well we'd a number of chief executives but one of them was a guy called Robert Holbrook. And I still work with him today. We do a lot together and a really smart uh, commercial guy who taught us, and this was gonna sound funny, but he taught us how to invest money wisely. So we grew up in a time, Meteor grew up in a time of we would no money to spend. We were waiting for investment. We were trying to grow commercial success. And when I guess what he taught us was, it was okay to invest some money in the right things because that would help grow your business. Um, really sharp commercial guy he understood and still does understands the commercial levers of a business and there were lots and lots of other people but at his particular time as the company went through explosive growth it was around what are the key commercial levers that have to be pulled um to kind of drive this organization forward and he just got it spot on so i would guess coming out of meteor uh, there was a sense of you know, at the end of the day, it's just business. We all have family and friends and we have, you know, there are behaviors to be observed and, um, you know, this notion that business has to necessarily be cutthroat and you have to kind of jump all over everyone else. I don't subscribe to that. I think we're all humans. We've jobs, we've lives, we've got families, we've got everything else going around And business forms, an integral part of that. But it's not the only thing. So this business, this idea of, of building a nice culture, making it a nice place to work while recognizing that people have other things going on in their life and you've got to find that balance, that was hugely important and built in. And then I guess the other one was around a focus on the commercials, the numbers, and the rest will fall in behind. If you can prove that you can grow a business, you can sell, you can, you know, uh, bring in customers, lots of other stuff will fall into place behind and you'll f- kind of figure that out. If you're figuring all of that other stuff out and you're not selling at the front end, it ain't going to work for you. So I guess they were probably two of the lessons that I took out of it.
0: Something stood out to me there when you were talking. You said, you know, originally at this beginning, perhaps 30 to 40 people and 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 as you left, there was like potentially over a thousand people there. Um, and yeah. There's a couple of studies that I've read that, that, that say like the, the lines of communication uh, begin to like potentially break around 150 employees and beyond. So in your, one of your next roles, which was part of Vodafone, if I'm correct, marketing yeah. director, Vodafone yeah. Ireland. Yeah. yeah. What like, was it an advantage to be part of a company that was such a small startup 30, 40 people that you worked through that communication breakout, 150 people and beyond, then going into Vodafone. Did that help in any way to be able to see um, how to relate to people? Like you've got both the the beauty of working at the startup, but then also like I'd consider it a large company once it's past a thousand employees. So you're at the large company as well.
1: Yeah, I guess there's a couple of answers inside in that ring. One is that Vodafone is an exceptionally well run and structured company and part of a global group. And what they do, they do it exceptionally well uh, and they've grown that business very well. So I guess they have figured out, uh, not just in Ireland, but globally, those kind of structures and processes that work for them. Um, I was only there for a short time. Uh, I'd like to think I had some little bit of impact. But in the the broad or long arc of, of the Vodafone story, they have learned from many years. And, you know, Vodafone Ireland was air cell long before it was Vodafone. And so there was this kind of long growing period uh, from it. Going back to your question around uh, Meteor, we worked exceptionally hard because I buy your argument that you get past 150 and then there's layers and there's senior teams and junior teams and middle managers and... All of a sudden, you don't know anybody. We worked exceptionally hard to make sure that we kept the culture. So we did quarterly kind of uh, all hands meetings. And we would literally book out a hotel room. We would all go in together. And everyone in that organization was very clear on what were the successes and the drivers of the business. And I remember standing up, pitching, you know, uh, a particular product or a particular service and being challenged from the floor by somebody. I will say relatively new or junior to the organization on the impact to EBITDA of this particular uh, initiative. And you kind of think we've done it. Like if somebody is concerned, so all of our bonuses and all of our quarterlies were based around sales commissions and they were based around kind of key drivers of the business, EBITDA being one, values being another. But if you can have somebody in an organization discussing you know, and you might call them relatively junior, but they might be newer. They might be a you, and they're they're wondering about the impact to EBITDA of a particular initiative. You kind of think to yourself, Jesus, we've done it. Uh You know, so there was that side of it. There was uh, we we did have a lot of kind of you know uh, social events. There was a social club, um, and then uh, I recall I was running the retail organization. So we had forty shops around the country. We had resellers. We had partners, and at least once a quarter we would go out and we would drive around the country for a couple of days and call into every shop and say hello to people. There wow. was a conscious effort acknowledging your point that an organisation grows and the closeness that was there when you were living in a portic cabin with 10 other people and outside toilets and no running water and all this sort of stuff, which we did, by the way, we lived in portic cabins for the first year. Uh, there is most definitely a sense that we worked exceptionally hard to maintain that culture. And I know for a fact, because there's still kind of old Facebook groups or friend groups or WhatsApp groups and we still talk about the glory days of what we built in meter and the culture and people say what an amazing everyone was very young back then they were all kind of just a lot of them were starting their careers a lot of them were just kind of we went out to Kildare we went out to City West Uh, people thought we were mad going out to the country it allowed us to Get a whole bunch of folks who moved out and are still living around Nace or still living around Johnstown who bought houses out there, worked in Meteor, and had an amazing time. So there was for a period in time uh, this amazing kind of culture that we worked for. It wasn't perfect; nothing is perfect in life. But there was a lovely, there was a lovely moment in time where we all pulled together to build something really good.
0: I'm I'm 29, so call me part of the Meteor generation. And you weren't cool if you didn't have an 085 number back in the day.
1: Well, you think about it, Rian, we introduced free text and free talk. And the reason yeah. we did that, and it was only online, it was Meteor only online. The reason we did that, we had a network that was empty and it didn't cost us that much to give away Meteor to Meteor calls and Meteor to Meteor text. And from that, we built a tribe who just joined us. And, you know, you topped up by 20 euros. So we got 20 euro audio or 10 euro you up front. We stuck that in the bank and then you just worked away for the month. But we had your cash up front. And on that one initiative, I think Meteor turned and prospered and grew. That was kind of, you, you look at kind of key things like that. And I know our competitors looked at it and said, how can they do this? This can't be done. Well, it could have been done. And we proved it and then they all followed us. So that was kind of those sort of things that you talk about there, those free talk and text and kind of quirky ads that we were running for a good number of years back then. Uh, so I guess the, the lessons are you can grow a company, you can grow it big, you can um, maintain a culture, you can... Be a scrappy competitor uh, and you can maintain that scrappiness even as you grow up and you can, you know, maintain that competitive focus on results culture, while at the same time, very importantly, having a bit of fun along the way.
0: That's important. Some people might call me the the original WhatsApp then. Um...
1: (laughs) I wish we thought of that back then. So you've
0: you've you've touched on culture a lot over the last let's say ten minutes. So park that aside for two seconds, and I'm not disregarding the importance of it, but as as part of a startup myself, and and you've had a fantastic career both in your current role. I see Innovation Exchange branding behind you. Uh, what's when someone's building a startup, so like pre seed, what's one or two blind spots that perhaps could hold them back that they're not aware of? not having a good hiring process, learn, helplessness assist the company, wanting to hold on to everything. What's one or two that stand out to you that go, Ah, oh, I see that. You're like, that needs to change.
1: So I guess I'll step aside from culture for the moment. But and yeah. I'm like you, I'm kind of we have a new business that we're setting up on the side and it's we're funding for it. And it's kind of a challenging ride. But that's kind of the nature of the the beast, as you know. Um, For me, it's around the. I think the one that always will is Do customers want what you have? So leave culture aside for a moment. And you do need to talk about the hiring process and you need to talk about that. But if you're building a product and you're happily building away by yourself without actually figuring out that anyone in the market wants what you have, that's probably why startups, not all in all cases, there's lots and lots of different reasons. There's timing, there's fit, there's pricing, there's market opportunity, there's access to funding right now in the market. You know, VC money is drying up. We're in a very tight period at the moment. Uh, the UK is not quite in recession, but it's slowed down, which is our next biggest market. Um, so there's a there's a general sense of tightness around the place. People running out of cash, VCs holding back money uh, and all of that. So, but the one thing, uh, I think it was it Eric Schmidt that Google said is that revenue solves all known problems uh, in jest. But if you can go out and prove that customers will take what you have, that's, that's the kind of the focus should be. And I talked about the importance of sales back in the meteor day and, and everything that we do. But the importance of selling, getting customers and validating what it is you're trying to do is the number one lesson. And everyone in your organization, whether it's one, two, three or five of you, everyone at the startup stage should be focused on how can we get this in front of customers? How can we sign up customers? And how can we get them to validate it? Because VCs want that as proof. Banks want it as proof. Your staff want it as proof. People outside want it. But that notion of and, you know, there's a certain going to the innovation exchange for a moment and we'll talk about it. But what we do is kind of put SMEs in front of corporates and get them to pitch. And I'm often amazed at. It's almost a reticence of SMEs to do a very strong pitch to a corporate. And it's almost this, well, I'm not sure they'll take what I have. Well, there's only one way to find out, and that's leap down their throat and give it to them uh, and see what happens. And the worst that can happen is somebody says no to you. So if you're asking me for the startup, what's the? um, there's a lovely TED talk actually by a fellow called Bill Bill Gross, G-R-O-S-S, and he talks about the five reasons startups succeed or fail. It's kind of really interesting. Uh, It's from a couple of years ago, but the, the lessons are still valid. And he says for him, the number one determinant is timing. And by timing, he means that you go to the market and the market doesn't want what you have. You may be too early or you may be too late. Um, and I guess it ties back to that sales piece that you very quickly get into the market, you talk to customers, and you see who wants what it is that you have, uh, and that's kind of your, you're going to be your key driver.
0: So the Innovation Exchange, you, you, you the, the logo's been in the background for anyone who's watching the video for not the logos in the background. You'll do a much better job at the 30-second commercial than I will, so the microphone is yours.
1: Yeah, so I guess it's founded on one or two key principles, uh, Rean. The first one is that digital transformation and the requirement for digital transformation is an imperative for this country, for businesses in this country. It's an imperative at a European level. And the the need for continuous innovation is actually hugely important for all businesses. I mean, we look back over the years and we remember some of the companies that were Chart toppers and then have vanished. Blockbuster, you know, Nokia from my industry. They were the kings of the castle, undisputed. And within 10 years, they were gone. And what happened? They just failed to innovate or they didn't see the world changing around them. So, for businesses, every business needs to be very aware of the fact that the world is changing. And arguably, in the next 10 years, that rate of change is going to increase. So the notion of innovation and continuous innovation for companies large and small is hugely important. So for us, that's the first principle. And the second one is we did a huge amount of research on the innovation exchange before we set it up. And we figured out that corporates, large corporates, they want to buy from Irish SMEs and claim that they can't find them. And on the other hand, Irish SMEs want to sell to corporates and they can't get in the front door. So they can't get by the gatekeeper and they can't kind of find the relevant person with the budget or the need or whatever. And it seemed to us that there was a gap for a dating agency uh, at its simplest form. And so what we do is we find on the one hand corporates and on the other hand, we find SMEs and we put them together in a very curated fashion and we get them to try and buy and sell to each other. And over the last year, we've onboarded 25 or so corporates. So we have... Glanbia, Musgrave, AXA, Ryanair. Uh, you know we've a list of companies that have joined us, and they come to us with particular challenges that they're trying to solve. And then what we do is, on the other hand, we've onboarded about two hundred and fifty SMEs. There's there's probably more coming through uh, every day, and we have a curated process where we put them together. So give you a really live example of how it works. Yesterday we had a challenge from uh, Ryanair. So we call them the challenge where the corporate comes on, does a webinar with me and they position their challenge and they talk about what are the, the things that they're trying to fix. And we have 50 to 60 SMEs on that webinar and they get to challenge, discuss, do some sales discovery with the corporate and they get to ask them questions to rule themselves in or out. And following that, they send us a submission we take that submission to the corporate and we work with them to see, would you really buy from one of these guys or not? And then we we kind of get into that back and forward of the sales process and the pipeline. So yesterday, Ryanair come on and they talked about efficiencies uh, at the back end uh, is kind of one key area that they had. <clears throat> they did mention a second one, which was around their ESG uh, kind of sustainability agenda and how they were looking for new areas that they could develop. So we had John Hurley, who's the kind of CTO and then we'd Colin O'Brien who's head of kind of quality and innovation they're two very senior guys and they came to us for an hour they talked about how they buy they talked about what they will buy and what they won't buy they talked about their decision making process and they talked about how to get their attention so we had two of the most senior guys in one of Ireland's biggest Europe's biggest companies and they're telling you what it is they want to buy what they can't fix themselves and how you should approach them I mean, it's kind of gold dust when you think about it like that. Uh, So those 50 or 60 guys, companies on the call, they will reflect on what they heard yesterday and then they'll send us a submission. That submission is one page, half a page, no more. And we will curate that. We'll put them in front of Reiner, in front of John and Colin. We'll go and meet John and Colin. We'll ask them to, kind of give us feedback good bad and ugly we'll then get the companies that they like and they'll pick four or five companies that they want to kind of really deeply engage with and we'll get into a kind of a good buying process and we've repeated that 20 times last year uh we'll repeat it 50 times this year and all we're doing is building a sales pipeline for irish smes and we're getting them in front of key decision makers who will buy
0: phenomenal Uh, i imagine there has to be a lot of trust in innovation exchange from both parties um I've seen it from the smaller trying to get into the bigger with uh, some people find it difficult uh, perhaps because uh, a big corporate doesn't know too much about the, the the small SME or the small SME doesn't have enough bandwidth to be able to carry the weight of the whole project Um, but from the large corporate wanting to partner with a small SME and not being able to find them that's something that I, I just haven't even lived that world so I don't know like, what were some of the reasons as to why the large corporates weren't able to find, or I don't even know if find is the right word, the SMEs to partner with? Because the what you're saying, essentially, it's Tinder for SMEs and, and, and corporates, which is fantastic in itself. And I imagine that there's a lot of trust putting you with the likes of John from Ryanair going, well, you know, if Connor gives it a lot not, not of approval here and, and he's going to do a lot of the heavy lifting and work for us, you know,
1: your reputations on the line at all times. So there's a couple of, of, of points inside in that and you're bang on. Firstly, is around the trust piece. So, yeah, we are we're a a trusted organization. So Skillnet are funding this uh, uh, and we're managing it through uh, further, previously Dublin BIC. So we've been around the block for a long time. I've been around the block. So, uh, you know, it it comes as a kind of a trusted organization. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing, why can't corporates find Irish SMEs? Um, Well, if you think about a large corporate, uh, they're kind of busy folks and he or she has a full agenda. They probably have a two-year product development roadmap that's already mapped out. And to break into that cycle, they have some trusted vendors. You know, how would they find the time to go out and scour an SME landscape? Uh, They just don't do it and they can't do it. So we do that for them. Um, And, you know, what are they looking to buy? They're looking to buy novel solutions. Think about large corporates. Everything is kind of mapped onto a... 12, 18, 24 month product development cycle, and the world is moving a lot faster than that. So what they're asking us to do is help them speed up their their NPD. They're asking us to say, you must be able to find these guys who have innovative technologies, who can move much more quickly and in an agile fashion than we can, and can plug into our existing systems. And so that's what we do you mentioned briefly about the type of company. So this is probably not for the pre-seed startup company because you're a one-person band and she is kind of by herself <clears throat> and you're then put in front of beer or AXA, you're probably not going to make it. So this typical company has, I guess, a, a team of four or five people. So there's some capacity in there and there's a capability to grow. Uh, the company... SME type has already existing revenue and customers. So you're not pitching into the corporate to say you'll be my first customer. They won't take that. So they're looking for some proof points and they will they will say to you, you know, I've got a reference site or have you got a customer or have you got whatever. So our ideal customer probably has a couple of staff already has a product that's built and deployed and is now ready to start thinking about scaling up Um, and the corporates and how corporates buy is quite clear. They're not going to hand you over a multi-million dollar contract on the first day you meet them. They tend to say, and we've seen this, they tend to say, let's do a proof of concept with you. Let's get you in, get you working with us. See, do we like you? Do you like us? <clears throat> and that might have a value of 50K or 100K, uh, as we've seen. And from that, if you deliver on that, the world is your oyster then to land and expand after that. Um, and just in terms of what we did last year, we we got to about five deals uh, done, and they're all proof of concept, Uh, engagement, money being paid. And we have a pipeline rolling over into this year of about 20 deals that are underway and we'll continue to build on that. So some of the deal, one deal happened with the corporate in about eight to 12 weeks. Uh, Others are kind of taking a bit longer than that, maybe three to six months to work through. And we'd expect that. So I kind of think this year is a big year for us. A lot of those deals that were flowing through from last year will start to land into this year
0: eight to 12 weeks is phenomenal. Cause I imagine the likes of John on Twitter is probably, you know, it is 2023, but he's probably living at the like Q4 of 2024. Um,
1: yeah. so this was a particular deal, uh, They had a particular need and it was pressing and urgent and we kind of found them the right person, found them the right company who were a super company uh, and we managed to get it done. And it was a proof of concept. They've extended that. And my understanding is they're now talking about a full kind of rollout of a contract. So, you know, if the need is there, the corporate will move fast. If you're kind of talking about going into, I don't know, a big bank and you want to replace the core most of them use an IBM AS kind of 400, I think it's called or something. If you're talking about going in and replacing a massive piece of on-premise and changing that out, well, that's a multi-multi-year job. <clears throat> if you're talking about going in and saying, we've spotted a gap of something that you can fix, we are cloud-based, we'll plug it into your existing system and we'll crack on, that can happen quicker. Yeah. I think the the piece that we're still cultivating is the the corporate mindset such that they're happy to do these proof of concepts Uh, they can see the proof points coming through and from that you build. So that's kind of where our focus is on is getting a lot of these these, uh, POCs underway.
0: Two final questions for you and I'll link Innovation Exchange website in the description where you're listening or watching this uh, and I'll also link uh, Connor's LinkedIn as well. But the two final questions are um, the importance of building your network. When I was doing research, either Google or LinkedIn, you're a popular man on Google and on LinkedIn, we've got a number of mutual connections. Um, How important is it uh to continue to build your network as you grow in your career
1: so i think it's yeah look the answer is it's hugely important but let me nuance that i think as you're working through your career and you're building up you come across lots and lots of folk so linkedin you know i have i don't have thousands i don't even know what i have there but there are people lots of randomers come in and if I can help them I will or if they can help me they will but there's a core group inside and in that of people that I've worked with over the years that I've stayed in touch with that I trust uh, they trust me I think and we continue to kind of look for shared business opportunities and I think that's hugely important so you know if you're thinking of as you work through life you come across people that are good at what they do that uh, have credibility Um are probably aligned with what you're trying to do in life and they are too and um, i would hold on to those sort of folks dearly you mightn't talk to them for a couple of years but at some point you're going to go back or they're going to come back and say hey i'm working on this i'd like you to help me or you help me whatever like that and even in the innovation exchange there's a couple of folks that i've worked with over the last 20 to 30 years they're really good at what they do and they've offered to come on board and help us out with what we're trying to build here And I would gladly take that up. I mightn't have seen them in 10 years, but I know their credentials. I know who they are and what they do. And I know they're self-starters that will hit the ground. So I guess there's a notion of a network in its wider context where, as you say, you and I probably have lots of shared connections and people that we know and we've all kind of touched along the way. And then there's a kind of a closer group underneath that, which is those folks that I'm kind of deeply connected with uh and they would be back to me and by deeply connected i mean i know them i know their credentials i know what they do if i could put something their way or they can put something my way that's how we'll operate so hugely important uh and finally you know what the thing about a network is you're going to be building a career that's going to last you i don't know, 30 or 40 years isn't it great to work with people that you like and you trust and that you enjoy working with it makes it so much easier
0: 100 final question for you uh if you were minister for education and you could add one mandatory subject to the let's say leaving search curriculum. What would it be and why?
1: Jesus, um, that's a tough one. Now, what would I add to the a leaving? complete pivot? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's a subject. Yep. But a topic that's close to my heart, and I'm sure there is a subject somewhere. Uh, somebody maybe it's philosophy or something, but curiosity and the world around us is just like we have in our phones, the entire sum of human knowledge available to us. And we spend our time looking at cats and memes of cats on Reddit. And you just kind of think to yourself, like there's so much happening in the world around us, there's so much interesting things happen. There's so many interesting people giving of their time free. Um, I would have kind of thought, how would you engender in children in school this wonder and curiosity? Of the world around us and how would you get them to kind of explore and to think and to read and to to kind of you know take your head up and look around the world and actually for all of us even in business like finding the time just to stop for a moment and kind of think and do a bit of research and look at the world around you and and not for any particular reason other than there's a huge body of knowledge out there that's all kind of hugely fascinating and interesting and you know, finding the time to do that. So yeah, if there was a if there was a time to find for kids in school to engender in them. And going back to Mr. Crow, my old teacher from second class, and him saying, just come to the art gallery and just sit there and look at paintings. And I know you're only whatever I was, eight or nine years of age, but come and look and kind of I can still smell the art gallery. I can still smell Saturday mornings in there and looking at pictures and having him explain this and explain that. And you kind of think, isn't that amazing? So, if we could get our kids to consider the world around them as they grow up, uh, I think that would be hugely important.
0: I love it. Connor Carmody, it's been a pleasure spending the last 35, 36 minutes with you. I wish you and the Innovation Exchange continued success. But for
1: today, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Reen. Thanks for having me and look forward to catching up soon.
0: morning. Get